If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obey my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what written in their law. They hated me without reason. When the counsellor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been, you have been with me from the beginning. All this I've told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time's coming when anyone who kills you will think it is offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. So we're embarking upon, or we have started on a series concerning Jesus' final day, final hours on earth. We're looking at it from the Gospel of John. From, as he moves from the upper room to the cross. And obviously we're doing this as a preparation for Easter. In the upper room, if you keep your finger in your Bible leave it open if you can, you'll see that they had a Passover meal. And Jesus had taught them to comfort, sorry, Jesus had sought to comfort his disciples. Only 11 then, Judas had left. And he told them that only Jesus was the way to the Father. And he promised the Holy Spirit would come. And look at the end of chapter 14, verse 31. Come, now let us leave. Now some say that is a rallying cry. I, I don't think it is. I think they departed the room. And so what we have now is the final walk that Jesus had with his disciples from the upper room in Jerusalem. If any of you have been, we've been to ostensibly where it might have been. And there's a walk through Jerusalem down into the Kidron Valley and then into the Garden of Gethsemane. And this was the final walk he took with the 11 of the 12 disciples he'd had with him for three years. And it was there he would be betrayed by Judas. It was the final teaching he gave his disciples before his arrest and crucifixion. We've sung so well, thanks Joe, 
about the crucifixion, why he came, what he did for each one of us, when nobody stood with him. They all ran away. Every one of them. It was just on his own. His last chance then here, during his earthly ministry, to speak to them about the task ahead for them. So the next two chapters from chapter 14, verse 31, I see him summing up his entire ministry and the task he'd given them to do in just two chapters. Now, it looks to me like a football manager who's about to send a player on as a substitute. I've talked to one of the guys here. It reminds me of Glenn Hoddle because as a great tactician, he had lots of charts. And when he sent a substitute on with one of his teams, he'd open the charts and he'd be telling the substitute exactly what he wanted to do on the pitch at that moment. But he'd had him for weeks and months to teach him what to do. But he gave the final teaching, he gives the final teaching immediately before the man goes on the pitch. And I read in chapters 15 and 16, Jesus doing that, not because that's his way, but that's our way of receiving what he wanted to say. And it seems to me it's a clear summary of the gospel that the Lord Jesus came to teach us that he is the only way to God. There's no other way. It tells, that, it tells us that in earlier in chapter 14, verse 6. He was about to die for each one of them, and for you and for me. And it summarizes just what he expected of his disciples, and therefore just what he expects of us. It's actually all about mission. We go to the early verses in, in Acts 1 to tell us what the calling is. But here, I believe, are two chapters of that calling on mission. The commentaries tell us we can break it up into three. Chapter 15, verses 1 to 17, all about the vine and branches, is really how crucial the mission is. The bit I'm preaching on this week, 50, chapter 50, 18 to 6, verse 4, the world hating the disciples is really all about the cost of mission. We will be disliked when we say things that are grossly unpopular. And then from chapter 16 onwards, verse 5, the work of the Holy Spirit, because that's the resource that's available to us to allow us to fulfill the mission we have been given. Now Justin spoke well about the vine and branches. One or two of you might not have been here. Just one or two thoughts. He went through seven points about Jesus being the true vine, how we had to stay in connection with him, how our fruits show we are his, that we're loved beyond measure, we must love others, and Jesus chose us. But if you look at the end of the passage on chapter 15, around verse 17, uh, 16, 17, we were chosen to bear fruit. Fruit that will last. That's why we're here. And if you look on 27, we've just read, it also tells us what we must do. We must testify. We can't just 
accept, we must testify. So today we're going to look at the world's reaction to Jesus if we follow him, the cost of mission. And next year, next week, Joe will speak about the Holy Spirit, the resources that are available to us in this mission. So we've read that in the early chapter 15, we read that Jesus likens us to a vine. And Justin spoke well on this. I see this as me being linked to Jesus as the root. And I draw sap from him, the Spirit, to allow me to do, if I do it, what he wants me to do. And I think of you all the same. But he's not satisfied with the vine. I have a vine in my garden. It's a 1964 vine from France, which is now growing, and last year bore fruit for the first time. But I hadn't pruned it. And it was covered in tiny, tiny grapes. And we went away for Helen's birthday in September, and I had come back wondering what I would do to improve it, and the birds had had every one. So today is my job to prune the vine, and I have no idea what to do. So if anybody knows, come and tell me. But actually, there's a remarkable thing about the vine. It only has one purpose, and no other. Its purpose is to bear fruit. Nothing else. The wood is of absolutely no value. It's burnt in the vineyard. In the day of the temple and sacrifice, each member had to bring timber to burn for the sacrifice. They were not permitted to bring wood from the vine. It has absolutely no value. The only purpose of the vine in my garden is to bear fruit. Now, Justin told us how important the vine was to Israel. When the children of Israel came into the promised land, they sent 12 spies and they brought back fruit with them to demonstrate to Moses what a wonderful place it was and to the whole community what a great place it was. And they brought back a bunch of grapes. It was so big it needed two people to carry it. It had one man at the back and one at the front and a bar between them with a huge bunch of grapes hanging between them. That's the logo of the Israeli Israel Tourist Association. Two men carrying a massive bunch of grapes. And that became the symbol of Israel. So important was the vine to Israel. But the plant has no other purpose to bear fruit. And it's interesting that the Lord uses that analogy for us. If we're on mission, we have no other purpose but to bear fruit for him. If you think of the vine, I've discovered from William Barclay's commentary one thing about my vine. Only half the branches bear fruit. And the other half never bear fruit. They simply take goodness from the ground. Now that isn't in my gardening books, but it's in my commentary on John 15. So I've got to cut off half the branches that will never bear fruit. And then I've got to go and cut the other branches down to about four foot high because even though they could bear fruit, it will spoil the fruit that it does bear. And then when the fruit comes, I cut half the grapes off and drop them at the foot of the grape to fertilize the rest. Now, do you understand how the Lord wants you and me to be pruned? Harder than you imagine. Because he wants to cut away everything that deters us 
from a mission to testify for him. That's how important the fruit is. So as we heard last week, we've been chosen to bear fruit, that's 15 verse 16, by testifying, that's our passage uh, in verse 27. That's why he came. We were chosen to bear fruit, chosen for joy, chosen for love, and chosen to be his friends. Tells us that at the end of the passage on the, the vine. Not to be slaves. But don't misunderstand the word friend. It isn't a mate at all. The time of writing, the kings and the emperors had all sorts of advisors to help them. They had counselors, they had statesmen, they had generals. But they were not allowed in the bedchamber. There was a group of people that were allowed in the bedchamber to consult with the king or the emperor before the officials. And they were called friends. This isn't matey. This is a mighty invitation to come in. The close proximity to Jesus, his closest of all, his confidants. That's what the disciples were. That's what he's trying to tell them. And I believe if we're rooted in the vine, that's exactly what he wants us to be. They shared everything. And he said he'd, he'd shared with them everything that he had learned from the Father, he'd shared with them. And that this is available to us too. He shares his mind with us. He opens his mind. He tells us we have a choice. We can accept or refuse to be a partner with him in the work of leading the world to God. To produce the best fruit, we need to be pruned. We need to be purified to be productive on this mission. Just look at 16 verse 31. The passage will come up in a few weeks' time. You believe at last, Jesus said. He'd been with them for three years. And his final words really to them, apart from prayer that will follow, you believe at last. They'd seen it. They'd seen what he was there for. And that's what I think we should be seeing today. The way to spread Christianity is to be a Christian. Through and through, though. The way to bring folk to faith is to show them the fruit of Christian life. We know the nine fruits. We've preached a series on it here. Jesus sends us out not to argue men and women into Christianity. He sends them not to threaten them into belief, but to attract them. And Jesus was attracted to the crowds. Four days before this was a triumphal entry. The crowds came out, they spread their coats down, they put, their, they put the palm branches down, welcoming him on into the city on a donkey. He was attractive because of what he did and partly what he said. But, so we need to live so that the fruit of, li of a life with Jesus is so obvious to others that they will be attracted to Jesus and want the same fruit. 
Now, this is actually achieved principally by how we behave, by what we do. I'm reading Nicky Gumbel in a year. I'm not telling you how long it's taken me, but you can press a button to say update. So I'm still online now, taking a long time. But he states in his Bible plan for a year that 89% of influence on someone is through what they see. 10% is through what they hear. And he didn't tell us about the 1%. So roughly 90% of our influence is our behavior. And 10% is what people hear from us. So the deed you do may be the only sermon someone will hear today. What did Francis of Assisi say? Preach Jesus, if necessary, use words. It's by your acts that you are seen. That's why mission and how we behave in mission is so, so important. It doesn't mean you won't have to speak. You may well be asked to do so. But 90% of your influence as a Christian to a non-believer is how you behave. So, where has Jesus called you in terms of mission? I always challenge, because the passage challenges me so much. I've always loved John 14. This is superb, 15 and 16. Where has he challenged you to mission? doesn't mean you have to go to some far-flung place as a missionary. I remember when we followed the Rick Warren course. I think it was a purpose-driven life. He said at the end of it, they were taking 5,000 people to Central America. And someone said, well, I can't go there. What can I do? But that's not what he said. He said, I challenge the church to go. And if you can't go, can you help? Can you pay? Or can you pray? Or can you make your arrangements? Or can you be at this end when they need support? What can you do? Keith Foster was a pastor in Coin Bay. And 30 years ago, he led me to the Lord. And he said in one of his sermons, which I well remember, and he said it in a quite an angry voice, really. Keith was a very gentle man. When people were saying, there's nothing I can do, he said, don't you tell me there's nothing you can do towards mission. You can write a letter, can't you? You can buy a stamp and lick it, can't you? You can encourage someone. They don't have to go far. The message of mission is clear to all. Consider what you can do and just do it for him. Early in the life of New Anan, as we call it in the year 2001 to 3, we adopted a mission statement. Many people will say it's salt and light in the community. Actually, it's not. It's to honor the Lord, re restore the honor of the Lord's name in Tongwin Lice by being salt and light. We wanted to restore the honor. So, how are you doing about being salt and light in this or your own community? There's a barn dance. There's a barn dance. You go in. Phil says if you can't dance, you can talk to someone. 
I'll see if he can dance, teach him. Because he says he can't. What about Sunday afternoons? Messy church, once a month. Come and meet people. We welcome kids, we feed them. Not been, but understand. Someone needs to make them tea. But you will be asked to speak. And you will have to work out what to say. How do I know? Well, you know we go to Uganda quite often. And the first time we went, it was in the year 2000, with a small charity called Care and Share, a Christian charity working through Baptist churches in the wilds. My task was to go 45 kilometers up a dirt road every day and build a little rainwater harvesting system from a school roof. And we even painted the words from John 4, verse 13, on the side of the tank. I went on a Christian trip and was doing Christian work and I believe my 90% was enough. I'd speak in the church and I would paint on the side of the tank, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I remember painting it. When someone said to me, why have you come? My tongue fell all over the place. And I think I said, what well, help you? Uh, I'd done my Christian bit in the church, but in the community I abjectly failed. And actually I was so ashamed, I wrestled with this for 50 weeks. And eventually said to the Lord, look, give us another chance. Let me put it right. And indeed, a year later, Helen and I went out again with the same team. And I went to the same place with the team. But not before Helen had gone to Olive Branch, the Christian bookshop in Rubana Village, and felt compelled for some reason, the spirit I think, in fact I'm sure, to buy two sets of daily reading notes. So I went up the 45 kilometer long dirt road and I went to see one of the schools where we're about to build a tank and the headmaster said, hello, why have you come? And I was able to say, I've come to share the Lord's love with you and a few more of the words. And she just said to me very simply, oh good, I'm a Christian, do you have any Bible reading notes with you? And I said, yes, I think my wife has some. And I could. So the Lord's Spirit was moving, but teaching me that I may well have to use that 10% to speak, not just to work. So we go wherever it is. It might just be to the spa here. Not because we're worthy. Not because we're equipped. Not because we're attractive, skilled or experienced. Not because we're any way suitable or appropriate. I wasn't. My first visit, I don't know, was appropriate. But we go because we've been summoned and we've been sent. Because we've been chosen to bear fruit. And so, whether it's Tongwin Lice or 45 kilometres up a dirt road to Katakui in Uganda. The word here is to go. To go to testify. Of course, 
This passage comes with a clear warning, doesn't it? It won't be easy because you will face opposition. That's what the heading says. The world hates the disciples. And that's what the text says. If we did belong to the world, it would be okay. But since we've been chosen, verse 19, if we allow the Father to prune us, verse 2, then we will be different. And the differences will be recognized and persecution will follow. And the reason is simple. We're told in verse 18, the world hated Jesus first. Can't believe you'd hate a man healing, doing good. But they did. And since they persecuted Jesus, we're told, if we believe in him and seek to testify about him, we too will be hated. And Jesus goes on to explain that if, we'd not, if he'd not spoken, they would not, they would not have known who he was. But he had spoken, hadn't he? If he hadn't done the works he had, they wouldn't have been guilty of sin. But they had both seen his works and they'd heard him speak. And they rejected him. And so by rejecting his father, and I see a threat to us here, since we do know who he is and where he came, but since they rejected the father, the Lord would condemn them. Time and again, the Lord had encouraged these children of Israel, his people, he brought them to the promised land, this massive bunch of grapes I talked about earlier. He had brought them back from exile in Babylon when they'd been exiled from Jerusalem, but he brought them back and allowed them to rebuild it. They'd received prophecy after prophecy about the coming Messiah. And when Herod asked for clarification of where the Messiah was to be born, they knew. They knew it would be Bethlehem. What Jesus is saying here throughout the whole of the Old Testament Scriptures, it was perfectly clear a Messiah was coming. But they chose not to believe. He was the Lord, or is the Lord incarnate, yet they were offended when he broke their man-made rules. And they feared losing the wealth they had. Because they did. They'd struck a bargain with the Romans. The chief priest bought his role every year. He paid for it. They hired the garments from the Roman storehouse in the temple. It's all about payment. And they feared losing what they had. And that's really where I was 30 years ago. I was a good church-going member, but reluctant to commit for fear of losing what I already had. When I did finally commit, I was overwhelmed with blessings. There's no need to be fearful. The Lord will provide you with anything you need. And so they got rid of him. We know in John 11, it's better that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish, said Caiaphas. Caiaphas had actually bought the role. His family owned chief 
priest's roll. They bought it every year. You couldn't have it more than a year in Roman times, so they would buy it from a different relative and maintain total control. And how wrong they had got it. And Jesus says in this passage, they had actually been told and they had seen and they had chosen not to accept. So if you haven't changed and accepted Jesus, I would encourage you, not by being angry with you, but by being gentle to consider what a profound thing the Lord did for each one of us, to die for us, so he might be forgiven. 24b it says, as it is they've seen, yet they've hated both me and my father. There have been so many prophecies about the Messiah and so many prophecies that he would be rejected. Psalm 35, Psalm 69, Psalm 109, all talks about rejection. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head, Psalm 69 says. So all of this was concerned by Paul when he's in the city of Antioch in Acts 13. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets. They found no proper grounds for death, yet they asked Pilate to execute him. And so when we try to obey Jesus' teaching and step out in mission, wherever it might be here or elsewhere, we can both accept opposition, since it fulfills this prophecy, they hated me without reason. Now, I've failed to think of an example in Aina where we've been hated. Actually, the community have been enormously supportive. But I can recall efforts of the world, our efforts to spread out and to uh, adopt missionary things to be affected by the world's behaviour. Back in 2002, we wrote down what we should do and we thought mother and toddlers and mimic a rubina was the right way to go, but we waited for the call. And the call came in one week when three independent people said, will you do a mother and toddlers? And even we thought that was a clear lead from the Lord, and we did. And it started going really, really well until two of the ladies fell out. And all of a sudden, the next Thursday morning, only half the members came. And we could have been very, very easily put off by this. We could have stopped. The leaders could have thought, oh, it's just not worth it. But no. It went on. And there's many people here. Matt talked about it when he last preached. There's many people here come here and came to faith because they were faithful. They weren't put off by the world trying to disrupt what we're planning. It was a clear missionary outreach that we embarked upon. And several people here have come to faith because of it. So there's a lesson here not to be easily distracted because... Reassurance comes in verse 26. My vision, my version reads this. When the advocate comes, the spirit of truth. And that's one of the two, that is the tool we're given to resist things that fail or don't go as well as we plan. The Amplified Bible gives us lots of other words as it would do. A helper, a comforter, intercessor, chancellor, uh, counselor, strengthener, standby. But the advocate term is really valuable here, I believe, because the opposition is almost in a Cortland setting. 
the advocate who will be sent from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, will testify about me. And that's an advocate. He's somebody who does just that in court, doesn't he? He stands for us. Or advocates who stands publicly in support of a policy. That's what he does. And that's what is promised. The Spirit of truth will come. Whatever opposition we face, he will be with us. The th- he promises the, three, the third person of the Trinity, a distinct part of God, will come and testify about Jesus. That in this setting is his purpose. The implication is clear. The work of the Spirit in times of trouble is to testify about Jesus. Verse 27 says, since the disciples must also testify. That applies to us. So although the Spirit of truth, this advocate, will testify, so must we. Doesn't leave it. I don't know many people who have been brought to faith by a dream. There are some. People are brought to faith by others who know the Lord speaking to them or behaving in a way they can see. And this is just what the disciples did. The Spirit fell upon them in Acts 2, we know that. They said, as they spoke boldly, having been hiding in the upper rooms for a while and then drifting off and going fishing, even though Jesus kept reappearing, when the Spirit fell upon them, they spoke boldly, didn't they? Save yourselves from this corrupt generation, we're told in Acts 2. And 3,000 people joined them. Did that lead to an easy life? Well, not at all. Of course not. They were arrested. They were disciplined. They were punished. They were beaten. They were imprisoned. They were driven out of the town. And the main perpetrator, Saul, having had his Damascus Road experiences, the one who spoke at um, Poseidon, Antioch and said these words Um, I've lost them now but basically how people had ignored what Jesus was being told in scriptures and that Jesus would be hated the chief prosecutor at the time who turned completely was the one who was telling them they got it wrong what a change one more apostle was added Matthias what happened to those twelve easy life Well, it's believed that 11 of them died for their faith and one of them died of natural causes but he'd been exiled. That's John. Amazing, isn't it? The obedience of 12 men have led to 31% of the world being claimed to be Christians. The highest proportion of any other faith. 12 men. Opposition came very clearly. And it will come to us if we speak about Jesus being the only way to the Father. Today, that is a dangerous thing to say. You've got to look at the internet to see the number of murders of Christians that have occurred. It's believed more Christians died in the 20th century than in any other other than 19th centuries. Actually, someone said more than anybody had designed in all the 19th centuries. I wrote some, some notes written in 89 and they claim that 26 million Christians had died in the 20th century because of their faith. How on earth they know that, I have no idea. I've not known anybody who's died for their faith in this country. But there's many examples of persecution that's springing up using our f- state funds. Look at the Ashes Bakery case. 
Remember Ashley's Bakery? The bakers who refused to bake a cake that was um, had a gay message on it. Prosecuted, finally found not guilty. But there's other cases. If you watch carefully what's going on in schools, you'll see what I believe to be a move against our faith. Now you might think I am being a little bit extreme here. Do you know what British values are? No, nor did I. Do you know who wrote them? No, nor did I. They're written by Ofsted. The British values that we are meant to be signing up to, written by educationists with, I assume, no faith whatsoever. Now, what do those British values say? Democracy, individual liberty, mutual respect and tolerance for those with different faiths and beliefs. How can we proclaim that the only way to the Father is through the Son? It'll come. We will be condemned for it. What about sex education in schools? Minority group has got hold of influence. Did you know there's a consultation out closes tomorrow on sex education? Your children from the age of three are about to have compulsory age and development appropriate teaching on sex and, ed and, uh, um, and education. It will not be by choice. It appears to me that someone against Christ is seizing hold of an opportunity to teach every child between the age of 3 and 18 what I don't believe. Now, I don't have children. I've got grandchildren. I sincerely hope they never have to listen to some of the drivel that will be spoken because it will not be in accordance with the faith we're teaching them. There is a great opposition in this country against the way we behave. Jesus tells us we will face opposition in verse 16, chapter 16, verse 1, so we will not fall away. So don't be consumed by this secularist approach. Don't get angry and shout folk down, but call on the Spirit, the Advocate, the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, to allow you to behave in a way which is seen by others and draws them near to God. And be prepared to use words. Let the Spirit guide you, but testify. Now, many of you know that our son and daughter, son-in-law and daughter, live in Uganda. Let me give you a little story of how I believe that if you work for the Lord, you will face opposition. They, grow, they don't grow coffee, they buy coffee. They live on barley, mountainside. The peasant farmers grow coffee, and Dave buys the best grain coffee, best cherries from them by paying 20% over the odds and then takes it and processes the coffee involving hundreds of people. And he pays them fairly, 20% over the odds, to get the best production he can. And he's selling that coffee in the States, in, the, in, the, in America, Australia, here in Britain. We've been drinking it here too. And it's great. And it's shipped into Manumit Coffee in, in, in Cardiff, so it's a Christian thing. On that mountain five years ago, there wasn't a single church. 
There were people who didn't know the name Jesus, certainly didn't know what he'd done. Today there's ten churches that will be meeting today, the very basic churches, but the Lord's name has been proclaimed. It's fantastic. Opposition? Oh, certainly. Muslim opposition, if you leave the Muslim faith, you're ostracized to the family, in fact, threatened with death. Problem the charity, certainly. They want to build a new unit and a coffee processing unit, and the land that they bought has been claimed by non-believers in court to try to take it back off them. Court has ruled in the charity's favour, and they've won, but now there's other disputes preventing and development. There will be opposition because you're proclaiming the name of Jesus. And how does the charity respond? With grace. They pray over the land. They persist with their plans. When we were there in January, Dave was out there for half a day with the staff, walking and praying over the land. Because that's what they believe the Lord wants them to be. He wants them to be missioners. He wants them to testify. He wants then they call upon the Spirit of Truth, the Advocate, to support them in what they do. But in such trying times, they need believers who have submitted themselves to remain in Jesus. Can you imagine what happens if amongst their midst of Christians, people behave dishonorably towards the Lord, the damage it will cause? Do you see why you need to be pruned? Do you see why you need to obey? It's not just you. It's me too. So what about you? What about you? Justin spoke well about remaining in Jesus. And I've spoken about the necessity of this so we can all understand the attitude of the world who will oppose us because the world hurts Jesus. So be it here in Tongwinlice or Cardiff or South Wales or UK or anywhere else in the world. Will you testify by your behaviour and by your words in mission to draw people to Jesus? I think that's what this passage says he wants you to do and he wants me to do. Let's finish by reading some very common words from John 3. Verse 16, but I'll read on. Which fits. We know the words for 16 very well. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's a commonly stated statement. But it goes on. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn it but to serve, save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. My verse for today that came on my iPad was from Ezekiel 36. I've just read that in my long, long Bible in a year. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart a stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's what the Lord's saying today, I believe. Join me in prayer, if you will. 
Lord, we're challenged again to follow your lead, to proclaim you as the Son of God, to bring glory to the Father wherever we're here. I just pray each one of us will feel clearly challenged to know just what it is that you would want us to do to testify. Be the family home, in the village, in the city, the country, or the world. Just guide each one of us, please, I pray. And send us the advocate, the comforter, the spirit of truth, to build us up so we clearly know the words to say when we challenge. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.